0: chapter four of in seven stages a flying trip around the world by elizabeth bisland this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by holly jensen chapter four fourth stage hong kong i like the name of my next port it has a fine clangorous significance like two slow loud notes of some great brazen longed bell hong kong we have one more glimpse of fujiyama the next morning as japan sinks out of sight during the day the young chinaman with the pallid waxen hands dies he has struggled hard to keep the flame burning until he sees his own land but the crisp breath of the japanese coast puffs it suddenly out a canvas screen is hung across one corner of the steerage deck and the doctor goes back and forth from behind it. They will carry him back to his country, though he will not be glad or aware. But the sea knows she is being defrauded of her rights, and wakes and rages. She comes in the nights and beats thunderously with her great fists upon our doors. She leaps to look over our bulwarks for her hidden victim. She roars with wrath and will not be appeased. For two days we steam in the face of the northwest gale she has raised, and for three, the ship plunges like a spurred horse. I find that bodily I am proof now against seasickness, but my temper has a violent attack of mal de mer. It makes me bitterly cross to go leaping and plunging about the ship, not to be able to keep my seat, and to gradually collect my soup and entrees in my lap so i retire to bed wedge myself in tight with pillows and go steadily through every word the ship's library affords on the subject of japan i am refreshed and cheered to find that the writer of each book fails as signally as i shall fail to convey any adequate idea of the fairy charms of the land of chrysanthemums shall one then paint a dragonfly with a whitewash brush nevertheless i gather from these books much confirmatory of my own swiftly gathered impression the very faults of the japanese are such as are misdemeanors in adults but quite forgivable in children they are hopelessly immodest with the unconscious shamelessness of babies and they fib imaginatively with an infant's inability to discern the relative value of truth and falsehood They are brave with the headlong courage of the child who is ignorant of the meaning of danger, and in matters of honor, they have youth's reckless passionate exaltation. They are unfailingly sweet-tempered and courteous. Their artistic conscientiousness ascends into the realm of morality. They are frugal and temperate. They detest all ugliness, dirt, and squalor. They are unique. They are delightful. They are Japanese." on sunday the fifteenth we reach hong kong the sea turns to a cool profound emerald and we descry again on the horizon the bamboo wings of the fishing and coasting junks these sails are somewhat larger and deeper of hue than those of japan and still more resemble the fans of giant yellow and russet butterflies more treeless mountains rise out of the green waters they are broken and rugged of volcanic origin and where the scant herbage fails their naked sides show tawny as a lion's hide it is one of the three beautiful harbours of the world the water winding deeply inland between the hills and flowing around island mountains ringed with girdles of foam at one o'clock we are in the broad antechamber of the port known as the Laie Moon, and are signaled from the lofty peak to the inhabitants of the town lying at its foot. At two o'clock, we drop anchor in the roadstead amid a great host of shipping of all character and nations. 23 days out from San Francisco, the White Star people had instructed Captain Kempson to make all due haste for my sake, and it is one of the swiftest voyages ever known at this season of the year— when the winds are contrary coming to the west we were sixteen days to japan where we remained thirty-six hours and five days from yokohama to hong kong the island of hong kong is a cluster of lofty abrupt hills with scanty vegetation seized by england in eighteen forty two after a struggle with china at that time the town was an insignificant fishing village but the value of the site was great commercially and strategically it is a convenient and safe harbor for the squadron detailed to watch and menace the russian navy in the pacific and the english have elevated the village into a flourishing city and made it the fourth shipping port of the world the harbor is navigable for the largest merchant vessels and men of war in existence and is perfectly sheltered and easy of access as in japan sampans swarm about us as soon as we are made fast to the buoy but they are far less picturesque than were those each sampan wears a bamboo hood in the stern and here the owner houses his wife and rears his family a brood of babies is in each one of these little hutches and while the pig-tailed subject of the celestial emperor stands in rows in the bow his help sculls skulls in the stern with a long oar that serves as a tiller the chinese woman of the working class i find decided centuries ago the question still in its stormy infancy with us of the divided skirt She clothes herself in a pair of wide black trousers, a loose tunic, jade earrings, and cork-soled shoes, and is ready for all the emergencies of life. Should they take the form of marriage with a sampan owner, she will but rarely set her foot on shore again, but will, in common with something like 20,000 of the water population of Hong Kong, work, sleep, eat, bear her children, rear them, and die in this crazy little boat." I am very regretful at leaving the oceanic, where I have received so much kindness, but hateful is the dark blue ocean after more than three weeks of it, and delightful the thought of even three precious days on land. I am to stay with personal friends in Hong Kong in order that I may see something of domestic life in the east, and I am taken ashore in their private steam launch. Chairs and bearers are waiting for us on the dock comfortable fautees of bamboo trimmed with silver and supported by long bamboo poles this is even more amusing than the rickishaws there are four chinamen for each chair dressed in my friend's livery loose trousers and tunic of white cotton bordered with rose color their feet are bare and their queues are gathered into psyche knots on the back of their heads like the hair of the shop girls in america they lift the poles to their shoulders and start off in a swift swinging trot we pass across the narrow strip of level land that lies on the water's edge the business quarter of the city built handsomely and solidly of native stone and begin to mount the broad steep ways that lead to the residence quarter these are cool and shadowy with great trees with the clattering feathered spears of the tall bamboos with gigantic ferns and prodigious satiny leaves of tropical lilies the streets are paved with asphalt and have no sidewalks here and there they resolve themselves into broad flights of shallow steps up which the bearers carry us with perfect ease the verdure is magnificent the town is submerged in it and flowers are everywhere on every wall stand rows of earthen jars full of greenery and blossom rows on rows of them in the courtyards more rows on both ends of every flight of steps and on all balcony railings every nook and corner that will hold a jar is filled with bloom and the rarest orchids are strewn carelessly about industriously producing flowers in delicious provincial ignorance of their own value and of what they might exact in the way of expensive attention we meet the most astonishing varieties of the human race all sorts and conditions of chinamen elegant dandies and exquisitely pale tinted brocades grave merchants and compradors, richly but soberly clad neat amas with the tiny deformed chinese feet sitting at the street corners taking in sewing by the day street sellers of tea shrimp fruit sweetmeats and rice women working side by side with the men mending the streets horrible old women weazened and wrinkled beyond all imagining all the femininity shriveled out of them their only head covering a bit of black cloth across their seamed and humble foreheads and the last pathetic spark of the female instinct for adornment displaying itself in the big jade and silver rings in their ears from windows shaded by light bamboo blinds look out coarse olive faces heavy and dull of eye repulsively sensual these are portuguese descendants of the hardy sailors who explored and ruled these southern seas before the english supplanted them they have bred in with the natives everywhere and have grown an indolent mongrel race plump and prosperous looking gentlemen go by in european dress and with tight-fitting purple satin coal hods on their heads their complexions are dark and their features dug out of a mat of astonishingly thick beards are aggravatedly hebraic in their caste they are Parsees and look uncommonly like the lost tribes exhibiting also i am told the same eminent abilities in business probably possessed by those much sought for hebrew truants at the corner stands a haughty jewel-eyed prince of immense stature straight and lithe as a palm in whose high-featured bronze countenance are unfathomable potentialities of pride and passion he wears a soldier's dress and sword and a huge scarlet turban of the most intricate convolutions i cry out with astonishment at the sight of this superb creature is it an emperor i demand in breathless admiration an emperor poof it's only a sikh policeman there are hundreds about the place quite as splendid as he when the arabs who had seen europeans only in trousers fled before the magnificent onslaught of the kilted highlanders at tel el kabir they exclaimed in amazement if these are the scotch women what must the men be so though a bit dashed i say to myself if these are the sikh policemen what must their princes be and secretly resolved to go some day and discover it gives me my first real impression of the power of england who tames these mountain lions and sets them to do her police duty it would seem incredible that this rosy commonplace tommy atkins who comes swaggering down the street in his scarlet coat can be the weapon that tamed the fine creature in the turban what is it makes this cheerfully vulgar anglo-saxon the lord of the hindu physically he is not the sikh's superior and in profound and passionate sentiment if one may judge by the countenance the hindu is infinitely above the Briton. nor is the latter greater in courage or dignity for these indians made a noble resistance to english encroachment and after submission were enrolled in the army of the conquerors as their bravest and most loyal native troops what is the secret is it more beef and mutton perhaps or more of submission to orders and power of self-discipline here comes one of the conquerors of india a kilted highlander swinging down the road in his plaited petticoats with six inches of bare stalwart pink legs showing and a fine hearty self-confidence in his mien that signifies his utter disbelief in the power of anything human to conquer him we leave this Ola podrida of nations behind and mount into a broad street curved around the flank of the hill on the upper side of it is the heavy wall of the portuguese convent once painted a lovely light blue and now freaked and stained a thousand charming tints by time and weather creepers bearing great yellow flower disks trail across it trees shadow it and the convent's massive outlines loom from behind A beautiful work is done inside in teaching chinese girls the sweet decencies of life and pretty feminine arts opposite is my friend's house two stories of stone surrounded by great verandas the coolies run down a curving flight of steps and deposit us at the door these hong kong houses have admirable interiors a lofty hall divides this one terminating on a rear veranda with a wide view of the precipitous white city buried in verdure sloping down to the flashing emerald of the bay that is ringed with tawny hills the hall is filled with more potted plants and massive furniture of indian ebony and marble to the left is a great drawing-room fifty feet long and eighteen high with a dozen windows here are more palms and ferns rich european fittings and eastern bric-a-brac scattered about are photographs of all the hohenzollerns for my friends are germans we rest a while in the cool green gloom of this apartment and drink tea brought by a tall yellow gentleman in silk trousers a black satin cap and a crisp rustling blue gown reaching nearly to his ankles my bedchamber is another huge shadowy place with a dressing room and bath as large as the ordinary drawing room at home furnished with old mahogany and silver fittings brought from germany two generations ago its airy unencumbered spaces remind me of the fine old bedchambers and the plantation houses at home in the south here i am awakened in the morning by another pigtailed gentleman who brings me my tea prepares my bath and arranges all things ready for my toilet female servants in hong kong are rare and after the first surprise is over these clean grave male maids seem perfectly efficient and convenable servitors our meals are stately functions adorned of course with profuse greenery and flowers with fine wines and delicate food exquisitely prepared a sumptuous eastern life that flows on with cool and unhasting repose and gravity i was never in a german household before and find here many pretty unfamiliar customs one of them a nice fashion of repeating upon rising from the table a german phrase which expresses mutual good-will and affection a sort of grace of friendship after meat there is a careful sweet civility too in their intercourse with one another very pleasant to share in all our expeditions about the place we are luxuriously carried by our coolies who apparently put forth no special effort or haste but with whom a rapid walker with no burden is unable to keep pace the streets are a panorama of unending interest Ricky shaws are employed occasionally in the level part of the town but the general mode of travelling in the steeper streets is by chairs the distinctive livery of private bearers consisting of the colour of the border of their white garments stout haughty red-faced englishmen go by in these chairs and occasionally a covered one is met with bamboo blinds in which sits an equally fat and haughty mandarin coolies run about at a dog-trot bearing immense burdens swung at the two ends of a pole carried on their naked muscular yellow shoulders pretty round-faced children dressed exactly like their elders play in the doorways and exchange smiles with the passer-by there is a general public amiability without the gay and gracious vivacity of japan in all save the lowest class of laborers these toil terribly and incessantly for infinitesimal sums and by the most minute economies manage to exist to continue these labors and privations they are old in youth parched callous and dully indifferent incapable of further disappointment they exist with the stolid patience of those who expect only stones and serpents having abandoned all hopes of bread and fish the town is growing and prosperous the shops hotels clubs and counting-houses are handsome stone buildings with deep arcade-like verandas surrounded by pointed arches the banks and public buildings are imposing and massive and the place is noisy with the sound of mason's tools the harbor for two hundred yards in front of the praia the broad water street is shallow and preparations are being made to fill it up and give hong kong the benefit of this extra width of level land the same was done some years ago at kowloon on the opposite side of the harbor where england owns a strip of the mainland on this reclaimed land fine wharves lined with godowns warehouses have been built and huge dry docks and shipyards established where shipbuilding goes industriously on and the largest vessels afloat can put in for repairs the export trade in cotton tea silk spices and rice is enormous and the place develops year by year considerable manufacturing industries Though three great lines of trans-Pacific steamers ply between Hong Kong and America, there is only one resident of that nationality in the city besides the consul. The English, Germans, Parsees, and Chinamen conduct its business. The strategic importance of Hong Kong is so great that four or five warships are always in its harbor or cruise in the neighborhood, and two full regiments are kept in garrison at the time of my visit one of these regiments was of highlanders who wear in this hot climate white jackets and helmets with their kilts they are being put through a rapid and vigorous drill one morning when we pass the parade ground and the pipes are shrilly skirling music to stir the heart in which runs the smallest drop of scotch blood not even the Sikh policemen stand first in my affections at this moment, as, to that wild keen sound, the solid ranks of brawny red-haired Caledonians trot by, with their petticoats fluttering about their bare knees, and their bayonets set in a glittering hedge. Oh bra sight! o oh, bonny lads! Scotland forever! The climate of Hong Kong at this season is of Eden, airs of paradise wave through the splendid tropical foliage the sun is pleasantly hot at midday and the mornings and evenings are dually cool cool coolies do their work naked to the waist but ordinary european garments are comfortable from every point is seen either the light flashing from green waters or the red and yellow hills outlined against a turquoise sky my friends are loath that i should lose a single pleasure and we are out all day long in this adorable weather one of our paths lies through the green twilight of the botanical gardens filled with such vegetation as i have always regarded with a doubting eye in the picture of the asiatic half of the geographies we pass under the tremulous lacy shadows of ferns twenty feet high through trellises weighted with ponderous vines that blow a myriad perfumed purple trumpets up to the golden noon and emerge upon sunny spaces where fountains are sprinkling silver rain upon banks of crimson and orange flowers the flaxen-haired muslin-clad english children play here cared for by prim trousered chinese ammas and we meet pretty blue-eyed german ladies in their chairs taking this road home another expedition leads to the top of the peak whose head is two thousand feet above the water and up whose side the town climbs year by year our way at an angle of forty five degrees is by a tram dragged up the mountain by means of an endless chain this peak is the city's summer resort and pleasuring ground handsome bungalows cling to its steep sides built in the italian style of warm cream-white stone there is ten degrees difference in temperature between the summit and the town and a summer hotel is in process of construction at the top we can see from here how the water flows between the hills and how the harbor broadens to bays and narrows to straits between the island mountains only at rio janeiro and sydney they tell me is there a harbor whose beauty compares to this the man in charge of the windy signal station comes out and explains to us the various ways in which the town is warned of the coming of vessels and also introduces us to an extremely low-spirited and discontented-looking lady with battered features who turns her back on us and stares in an unwinking disgust out to sea she was once the gay and gilded figurehead of the princess charlotte wrecked in these waters long since and plainly resents what she looks upon as her fallen life and the banal jocosity of those who rescued her bobbing detachedly about in a sheltered cove and brought her up here to assist a low signal officer our chairs have come up another way and we are to be carried down the long winding road that sinks by slow stages to the town during the first stage we are in full sunlight passing under the walls of the white palace-like bungalows with smooth-shaven tennis courts where ruddy-cheeked spare-loined young englishmen toss the bass to fair-haired light-footed english girls then the road the earth here is a thousand beautiful shades of buff and rose winds about to the east and we pass into the shadows A tiny Greek church with a sparsely populated graveyard clings to the declivity above us, and from far below comes the faint cool sound of waters foaming round the foot of the hills. The sun has set. Only the utmost heights are gilded now, and the twilight deepens on our path. We swing around the hills, in and out, and down, down, with smooth, easy motion, to the regular pad, pad, pad of the bearer's feet here and there in the dusk we discern the scarlet turbans of sikh warders standing motionless as bronze statues below in the harbor the lights of the town the ships and the flitting sampans sparkle through the faint evening mist like multitudinous fireflies the town climbs the hill to meet us and we pass into the still heavier gloom of trees a great pure calm reigns where we sink into this cool flood of darkness half-naked figures go by noiselessly on unshod feet i know all this i remember it well somewhere once i passed through just such shadowy ways in the warm nights this silent piece of darkness after long hours of burning light is quite familiar to me I try to recall where it was, but it was a long, long time ago, and I have forgotten the name of the place and the people who lived there. I only remember that I used to pass under the great trees, that some wonderful secret delight waited for me beyond them. Alas, that was very long ago. Tonight, only an excellent dinner attends my coming. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure-dome decree. Kubla khan did come to tiffin one day a handsome dark gentleman of forty years or so with very white teeth and eyes like black velvet he wore extremely well-fitting london clothes and in his soft slow voice he signified that on the morrow he would take us to see the pleasure dome not yet entirely complete kubla khan was his name in xanadu of course but in hong kong for the sake of convenience and brevity he was called kachik chater also for convenience and brevity he gave it out that he was a british subject resident in china born in india and with a certain mixture of greek and armenian blood in his veins naturally in xanadu his rank and pedigree were far more complicated it had been his fancy to come to hong kong twenty years before neglecting to bring with him any drafts on his treasury and in the interim he had collected something like a million pounds it was said it was he who had made the long water front at kowloon rescuing it from the sea and had covered it with great go-downs filled with merchandise of the east and it was he who was proposing the same feat on the opposite side of the harbor he had interested himself more or less in the banks the shipyards and manufactures of various sorts and he now felt prepared to erect in china a repetition of the xanadu pleasure dome He took us first to see his docks and go-downs resounding with the loud clangors of trade and then through the grassy kowloon plains by a wide red road shadowed with banana trees to this lordly pavilion set on the crest of many flowering terraces its pale yellow outlines cut cameo-like against the burning blue of the equatorial sky to the right is the naked side of a hill all deep-tinted buff warmed with red and everywhere else a sea of satin-leaved tropical foliage the center of the pavilion is a great banqueting hall with domed roof thirty feet above the tessellated pavement the walls are frescoed in the same deep cream color of the exterior touched here and there with blue and rose and gold twenty lofty arched doors give on the veranda from whence beyond the roses of the terrace one sees the glitter of the green waters of the harbor at each end of the banqueting hall opens a drawing-room set with mirrors and lined with divans beneath are tiled bathrooms needed in this hot climate after using the tennis courts and bowling alleys here kubla khan's guests come come by twenties and fifties and feast splendidly on high days and holidays and on hot starlit tropical nights it is like the sumptuous fancy of some splendid roman noble proconsul of an eastern province the pavilion for the moment is in the hands of workmen so we may not dine there but we do dine with the khan in his town-house eating through many courses drinking many costly wines and served by a phalanx of tall celestials in rustling blue gowns another day we go to the shops and turn over costly examples of chinese art coming home through the many-coloured ways of the native town steep streets that climb laboriously up and down stairs and so narrow that there is hardly room for our chairs to pass through the multitudes who swarm there sixteen hundred residents to the acre they average in this part of the town buzzing and humming like the unreckonable myriad's insects bred from the fecan slime of a marsh two-thirds of their life is passed out of doors in the streets and all seem to be patiently and continuously busy children are as the flies in number and activity the place smells violently smells of opium of the dried ducks and fish hanging exposed for sale in the sun of frying pork and sausages and of the many strange repulsive-looking meals being cooked on hissing braziers in the streets and in doorways there is no lack of color the shops are faced with a broad fretwork richly gilded and the long perpendicular signs are ornamentally lettered with large black characters every house is lime-washed some strong tint and the whole leaves upon the eye the color impression one gets from chinese porcelains of sharp green gold crimson and blue all vigorous definite and mingled with grotesque tastefulness my plan had been to sail from hong kong on the norddeutscher lloyd ship priusen but a peninsular and oriental steamer sails three days earlier i am advised to go in her as far as ceylon and i do so on the morning of the eighteenth of december i find myself on the deck of the thames surrounded by the charming friends and acquaintances of this hong kong episode who have come to give me a final proof of their goodness and wish me speed on my journey this boat is as polyglot as the land i have just left and swarms with queer people the sailors are lascars clad in close trousers and tunic of blue cotton check and red turbans many of the Parsees in their purple coal hods come aboard to bid farewell to a parting friend one of the highlanders is going home and his comrades have brought the pipes to give him a last tune grief and scotch whisky move them finally to play a spring and dance it round in spite of the heat which brings the sweat pouring down their faces Sampans cluster about with pretty little Chinese dogs, bamboo steamer chairs, and canary birds for sale, driving a few final bargains. The bell warns them all away. I wave goodbye to my friends and to the beautiful city with the keenest regret. The fifth stage of my journey has begun under the shadow of the Union Jack. End of chapter four. Recording by Holly Jensen.